Hello, 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 and welcome to Capital Musings, your NCDF podcast where we focus on fresh ideas and make finance work for the poor in the 46 least developed countries. You're listening in to Capital Musings, and you can find us on your preferred streaming platform or on our dedicated website, podcast.uncdf.org. I'm super pleased to be welcoming to Capital Musings, Ms. Liesl Pritzker, co-founder and principal at Blue Heaven Initiative. Welcome, Liesl. We're pleased to have you with us. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Liesl, can you describe your life journey thus far in three words and what they mean to you? <laughs> in three words, I hate to use sort of a weapon metaphor, but ready, fire, aim, I would say, in that order. I think one of the things that marks Blue Haven and our kind of style as investors is that we're very pragmatic. We like to learn by doing and then course correct based on what we learn. So we are not the sort of organization that sits in a room for two years and does a lot of desk research and then creates a beautiful strategic plan and then tries to go out into the world and implement it. We do it as we go. So I'd say ready, fire, aim in that we do think things through, but then we try something and then figure out where we need to correct and, and change as we go. So very interesting. I really like it. I may steal it. Ready, fire, <laughs> aim. And, you know, I, I really like it because it's very real. Like it's not just pitching it to something. Yeah, we already have the, the secret weapon and we're just going to apply it everywhere because like, we know that it's going to work. I think it's very, it's at the basis of development work as well. Uh, trying to pilot new things, see what works, what doesn't work and making sure that we learn from whatever we do. So I think I do NCDF, we align very well with that mentality. So you said investing. So and you already touched upon Blue Heaven Initiative. But before we talk about a little bit more Blue Heaven Initiative, tell us a little bit about you and what brought you to the world of investing. And in particular, why investing in frontier markets like Sub-Saharan Africa? Sure. So I grew up in Chicago. I am from a big business family. And so I inherited assets uh, that are in my control when I was about 21. And I was at Columbia University at the time. It was an interesting time there. It was right when Jeffrey Sachs came and set up the Earth Institute. And, and there was a lot of conversation around microfinance and sustainable development and market-based solutions. And, and this was swimming around. I was always inter interested in international development. I thought maybe that's what I would go into. But then when I con got control of my inherited wealth, I thought, hey, I could actually put my own money to work and using some of these development principles to inspire the investment theses that we're going to go after. And so that's why I'm an investor is by sheer dumb luck of getting born into it. But that time period and those conversations that were happening around 2005, 2006 were very formative for me in directing how we wanted to set up our investment work. And so sort of cut to now, I guess, 15, 16 years later, and what we have done is tried to look across all of our investments in each asset class. And at first, really, truly understand what the investment is doing. So if it's a real estate developer in 
rural Indiana, like what are the principles by which they are building those houses? How are stakeholders involved? Or if it's a startup in, in, in Zambia, what is the product or service that is being sold? How is it actually affecting economic development in that country? What is its potential to help scale a solution or give access to capital for underserved markets? So there's a huge range of lenses that we look through for each investment. But the most important thing is, what is this investment doing? What is our capital in that investment doing? Is it something that is a net good, whether it's social or environmental metrics that you're looking at? Or is it causing a problem that either philanthropy or governments or someone else is going to have to come in and clean up? And so that's the real kind of basic parameter that we look at, but why emerging markets and developing markets, we think that there's a lot of opportunity. And we also think that our style, we're a fairly flexible lead family office. We can provide debt. We can provide equity. We don't have other LPs that we need to work with. We can be really flexible. And we think that that's a helpful type of capital in environments that are more resource constrained. And so that's a large part why we were very interested in developing markets. Thanks so much, Lisa. I couldn't agree more. It's very, very needed. And the more flexible, the better if there's emerging markets. So I really liked the fact that you were born into it, but also your academic studies led you to it. I think the time period that you were mentioning is where Impact Investing was born. So it's really where, you know, this linkage between investing and impact on the other hand came together and started really talking to each other. So I think that's uh, very interesting that you bore into it also from an academic standpoint. And I think you couldn't be more right when it comes to lenses. I think it's very important to be frank and to be very candid about the fact that there's not only emerging markets, but also there's you know, in-house needs and where investment needs to be brought up. And also given a little bit the investment thesis that you mentioned at the beginning around learning by doing and making sure that what you learn is carried out. I think it's something that when it's closer to us for a variety of reasons, I think it can lead to greater change immediately and bring about other change also in anything that we do. Now I get a little bit how you came into the world of impact investing, but tell us a little bit more about why you have an initiative and what it is and what makes you feel that it's different from others? What makes it distinctive? Sure. One of the things that makes us unique is just we're a single family office. So we don't have other LPs or investors that we are promising certain things to. So Really, that gives us quite a bit of, of, of flexibility. And we could say, all right, well, for this part of our venture capital portfolio, we are going to go to market and look for African fintech seed through Series A. And we're looking for these sorts of deals, but we can pivot given what is interesting and what kinds of deals we see. We can also time our entry into markets in ways that other funds can't. So for example, last year, so, so we do have a, a pretty healthy allocation in our private equity portfolio to particularly African tech and startup scene there. So a number of investments across Nigeria, 
Ghana, East Africa, Southern Africa as well. But we didn't do a deal in 2021. And a lot of deals got done. Huge amounts of money were raised by this very exciting crop of startups. And we thought the market was a little bit too hot. Like we thought the valuations were too high. Given what we were seeing and given our experience, we've been in those markets for eight years now. Where's all that seed money going to get its series C money? (laughs) So we were just concerned that things were a little bit overheated. So we were able to sit out. Whereas if we were a closed-end fund, we have a mandate to deploy capital, deploy capital. So things like that, I think, give us, again, it's just down to flexibility, which we're lucky to have just because of the nature of being a single-family office. And then the other part I think that makes us unique is, again, because this is all of our assets at the family, we, although we mostly focus on our investment portfolio and we're investors through and through, We also have a small but significant allocation for philanthropy or concessionary capital. And so we often see things in our pipeline that we are excited about from an impact perspective, but we don't think that there's a risk-adjusted return there. But we still have pockets of money that we can deploy that are more on the concessionary side. And I think that makes us unique as well. So it's, again, it's just down to flexibility. Very interesting. Flexibility and concessional capital on the other end. Just curious about this second part. So is it something that you do because there's a particular cost that you're interested in, like being a family office, or do you also use it to learn more about the market? Is there not imminent return of investment, so to speak, from a monetary sense, but more like something that you use to learn the market a little bit and to understand what's hot or not hot and going to be hot? In the coming years, we've done in our concessionary or catalytic capital portfolio, as we call it, we've got quite a range of things that have gone in there. So, one thing we did was for a really exciting new fund manager, we helped warehouse their first deal, which then helped them raise more capital into their actual fund. And then we actually converted that warehousing facility into an investment in their fund. But it just de-risked. They were able to get that first deal done, which then helped them raise the fund. But that was quite risky for us at that warehousing level. But we were really excited about this team and excited about their investment thesis. And so we went ahead and wanted to do that. Then there's companies that we are also excited about, but... Maybe they're too early for us, so we'll do maybe a debt facility for them to test out a new product or enter a new market, but we're not quite ready to take on the equity risk with that type of company, things like that that we've done before. Um, It's really, it's quite a big range, and it's funny, back to that sort of ready, fire, aim, if you look at this world of concessionary or catalytic capital. And there's a number of white papers and wonderful work done. There's the Catalytic Capital Consortium that writes and produces resources for trying to define the space, like what makes a good, what's the difference between a good catalytic investment and just a bad returning investment? Like, what is that difference? And so there are frameworks that people have put forward and they're very helpful But one of the things that we've learned is that 
every time we've tried to make like, here's our strategy in our catalytic capital portfolio, the next deal we meet just breaks the strategy apart <laughs> because they all look a little weird. That's part of the nature of why they won't fit in a traditional investment portfolio, even an impact investing portfolio, and then a traditional grant portfolio. So we've embraced the messiness um, and I'm not giving us, we do have structure, but just not to be too beholden to it because if it looked clean and crisp and it was all tied up with a pretty bow, then somebody else would have done it already. And I think that's also part of our strategy that, and it's really fun too. There's fun, interesting things in there. Yeah. And that's very interesting. And I think you really touched upon a, a peculiarity. I looked into what that actually means and why it makes a family office peculiar in the investment scene. I think what you touched upon from a development perspective, one from UN word, <laughs> we call it technical assistance at first. And that's something that we normally do as a UNCDF to really get a pipeline of bankable projects, especially in emerging markets. So for example, when there's a small and medium enterprise that doesn't have collateral or doesn't have credit history, that's when you help them build up that history that would allow them eventually to get a little bit more of either commercial capital, both from a local perspective and eventually down the line, capital markets and others. So I think this is so crucial and it's often when talking about private sector investors, it's something that maybe it's not perceived that that's not my role to play. But actually, there's something that you can still use for a variety of reasons that still build up and verifies your investment thesis, no? Well, and I think that's where they're having relationships between these different types of capital providers. And I hope that part we can get better at as well, because like one of the things I think about one of our very first investments, like way back in. 2014. And it was a company that it was a waste to energy company. So essentially they collected fecal sludge from cities and converted it into energy source that could be burned in place of coal. And what was interesting was, okay, that's great, but it's not a venture company. It's not like, that's not a software growth at all costs, like it's going to hockey stick, it's going to 10x, right? It's a fine company, but the only the kind of capital that was available for an organization like that was basically either grants or VC. Like that was it. And actually, it's kind of a muni bond territory. You know what I mean? That's sort of a municipal waste play. It's not really a venture play. And so that's where I think some of the larger capital providers that are looking at what our city and municipal funding ecosystem, what's happening at that level. Whereas we're a relatively small family office, we can't infiltrate the city funding for Kigali or Mombasa. That's where we need the help of UNCDFs and these other multilateral to help do that. So. I think some, that's one thing we've learned as well of, again, we can be flexible. We are lucky enough to have different tools in the tool belt, but we also like have to know our lane of like what's the, you know, right size, what our impact could be. And that was one thing I think we learned early on as well is this is actually sometimes like we should call up our, our large multilateral friends for this kind of <laughs> deal and not pretend it's going to be a VC-like return. 
Absolutely. That's why we're there as well, to yeah. help out and to discuss it. And that's why we have this platform trying to get the conversation going. I think on the one hand, you've really got it in a way and you presented it in a way like because there's lack of information, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge of what's actually out there and how the different tools that we may apply can work best for a specific context. Although I always say that where I see, oh yeah, that's make my lane. It's very humble as an approach uh, to investing. But also I would say not to shy away from it, to take that risk. And uh, the reason why the need is so big, especially right now, as we really need to accelerate our work towards the 2030 agenda, given, you know, the triple planetary crisis, climate change, as well as COVID-19 pandemic that reversed much of the progress that had been made, especially in the least developed countries and emerging economies that we're defining and we're talking about. So really don't shy away. And if you want to learn more, there's lots of fora that you can look into and just uh, use the hashtag and we're happy to, <laughs> uh, to talk about it. But you touched about maybe being mindful about what kind of instruments may work in a specific context. So can you tell us how you think, like what kind of instruments, for example, or what kind of approaches from the different lenses that you touched upon at the beginning can work best, in your opinion, to link what we've been discussing, wealth, and making it work for profit and for purpose? Sure. I think that we look across, like at Blue Haven, so we take a multi-asset class approach. So we invest in public equity and debt. Actually, interestingly, back to the muni bond conversation, I actually think municipal bonds, if you look at them, are really, what a great sort of development tool, just like your standard, like, we're going to issue a bond, we're going to build a new sanitation facility, like issue a bond, we're going to build a school, like, it's just classic, boring, fabulous finance. And so actually, that was one area when we were looking at our own and this is in the US. But looking into our municipal bond portfolio, there is actually a lot of almost latent impact in that portfolio. And when you look then and you say, well, what if we even direct capital into even more under-resourced areas or areas that we think it's harder for them, given where they're located to raise capital for those kinds of projects. But I think that's one area that gets overlooked by impact investors is just good old-fashioned muni bonds. And we look at sort of public equity and debt. And then in the alternative space, looking at trade finance, like slightly less sexy, but incredibly important areas of global finance that make the world go around. And so those are areas we try and pay attention to. Real asset financing, there's interesting financing facilities for water assets and forestry funds and things like that, that uh, I think are, are also really interesting. And then down to more sort of traditional venture style investing as well. Also, we have quite a big fintech portfolio, particularly. So we not only invest equity in those companies, but oftentimes we'll do like a debt facility, usually when they're earlier stage, um, before they get like big, fancy bank financing. But early on, we can help out with that as well. So lots of different kinds of, of tools. And then sometimes part of it is also recognizing when you what is the right sort of organization for the problem that they're trying to solve. Sometimes you see 
an organization start and they're setting themselves up as a for-profit company, but actually they should be a nonprofit with earned revenue. That's actually going to be easier. But lately, it feels like particularly in, in the African markets where we're talking about, it is easier. It's easier to raise VC than it is to raise grant dollars. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's a little bit scary, but it's also yeah. exciting that I think there's a lot of potential and opportunity in that ecosystem that people are, are, are picking up on. So I think you really touched upon so many different layers that are often overlooked. On the one hand, you may call it worry. I call it like simplicity may work. It needs to work, especially in this markets. We don't need to do any overly fancy stuff at the beginning. You just need to get there, get it done. Because in these places, even $1 can do huge uh, difference to those that are most vulnerable. And it really bugged. I mean, <laughs> at the right tree, let's say, because, you know, when you talk about community bonds, have an investment fund called the IMX that we work with, with Meridian from France, and we help local governments access capital markets, municipal finance and stuff like that. So it's something that it's really close to the roots and yeah. uh, why we were first born, let's say, established back in 1960s at the NCDF. And it's so needed to really bring about, and I think COVID-19 has brought that to fruition as well. So in terms of how much it's needed to not only look at the rural areas, but also like cities and localities and local governments and their role. So I think it's something very important to think about. But also looking at another element to say that VC is easier than accessing grants. <laughs> I, it depends. Maybe I'm biased because I come from a humanitarian background, so I know how difficult it is to get grants as well. <laughs> so but, uh, I'd love to hear more about that. But it's true. Well, yeah, just that. And I think it's swinging into balance a little bit, but I feel like there was definitely a period of time where the cool thing to do was to structure your, your development intervention as a social enterprise and raise money. Don't do a nonprofit. That's lame. You want to set whatever the thing is as, as a business and then raise investor capital and that way you can scale faster and therefore have more impact. And I, while I understand those intentions, I think there are some interventions that are really important, can have huge scale, but they're not going to return capital to investors in the way that investors want. And those, that's not to say that those organizations aren't great and wonderful. If you look at something like fair trade that increases capital to farmers and has figured out how to both be consumer facing and corporate facing and facilitate that relationship with better practices on a farm and then make those farmers more money. They do, I'm on the board of Fair Trade USA, they did 19 million in revenue last year. Like, that's awesome. They're a nonprofit. Like, they're more break even than Uber. Like, it's <laughs> like nonprofits <laughs> can be cool, you know? Okay. Uh, and so have big impact and move big amounts of capital. And so I hope that we can make that cool again, or at least there should be a balance between reaching scale doesn't necessarily be the UIPO. 
Absolutely. Yeah, let's make it cool back again. And to think about it, it's like the more you know and you can learn about it and you hear stories or you have the access to get to them and to learn how this may work. I think it's super cool and it works sometimes even more so than other types of videos or the financing. It's just what you were defining, like we call investment continuum, meaning not everybody is at the same stage. And although they don't need very, very big ticket sizes, that doesn't mean that the need is not there. Actually, it's even more needed sometimes in those economies that we were discussing today. So absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. I think that it's time for you to share some last words with our audience. And maybe I would like for you to give us a pitch maybe for those family offices that are listening in and maybe wondering, look, yeah, I think it's so interesting. I mean, it sounds really cool. So what should I do to start investing in emerging markets? So can you share some tips on that and how to pursue it and why? Well, I think a great way, and this is a great time to get involved because I'm most familiar with the African context, but I think this is true in other geographies as well, is there's a really exciting crop of new fund managers that are, have, they're not first time investors, but they might be setting up their first funds and they know these markets intimately. They're local. They know the entrepreneurs. They know what's going on. And I would say getting in on the ground floor with some of these new fund managers in particular and learning from them. And then the other thing that you can do, particularly if you're a family office, is get to know those fund managers and say, hey, when you've got an interesting company that maybe needs a short-term debt facility or something, like, let us know and we can maybe help out because you're a wonderful LP if you can provide any added value to those to those GPs. And so I'd say entering in by finding some of these very cool fund managers is a great way to do it. And today is eight years ago when we were starting, there were not that many. And today there's just more capital going into. I think people are really appreciating the opportunity in these markets. Absolutely. Get out there, learn, talk about it, do some research and even on us. And if you have an initiative, if you want to, uh, to learn more about how it works and what you've done. And also on your CDF, of course. And so just get it out there and start discussing it. It's such a wonderful tip to start thinking about locals, like making sure that the action that you're doing is local, is owned by locals, is really understood by locals is context specific because that's where you're gonna be having great impact or ideally so. So thank you so much, Lizzo. It's been an utmost pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today. And thanks to our audience for joining us on UNCDF podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify and our dedicated website podcast.uncdf.org. If you found this episode useful, please spread the word on Twitter with an hashtag Capital Musings or leave us a review. Reviews help us and new listeners discover our podcast. So if you enjoyed listening, please leave a review. Thanks and until next time.